Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 321. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Trauma Therapist Network. Trauma Therapist Network is a platform for finding a trauma therapist, learning about trauma, and understanding about how trauma shows up in our lives and what the healing process can look like. Go to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com to learn more. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Today, I'm very honored to be joined again by a guest who was on the show last October. I believe it's episode 309. My guest today is Dr. Mona Delahook. Mona has a new book out this year called Brain Body Parenting, How to Stop Managing Behavior and Start Raising Joyful, Resilient Kids. Her previous book is called Beyond Behaviors. And um, we talked about that on episode 309. But in case you missed it, Mona M. Delahook, PhD, is a clinical child psychologist with a passion for supporting families and children. She has worked widely with multidisciplinary teams in the area of developmental and emotional differences for over 20 years. She is a senior faculty member of the Profectum Foundation and is a trainer and consultant to schools, public and private agencies, and parents. Her blog and award-winning book, Beyond Behaviors, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Understand and Solve Children's Behavioral Challenges, explains a new neurodevelopmental approach to childhood challenges for therapists, parents, and teachers. Although the description sounds a little complex, the book is very readable, very approachable. It has a lot of like charts and images and things are explained really well. So I highly recommend that book. I was very grateful that she was willing to return to Therapy Chat today. So let's dive right into our conversation. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm so happy to have a returning guest, Dr. Mona Delahook. Mona, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Oh, Laura, thank you so much for having me back. I'm excited to talk to you. Yes, I'm really happy too that we can talk again. 
You have a new book that's just coming out called Brain Body Parenting, How to Stop Managing Behavior and Start Raising Joyful, Resilient Kids. So I'm excited to talk to you about that because it's like, it seems like it's just an extension of your previous book, Beyond Behaviors, and goes into even more depth. So I can't wait to get started. But before we do, let's just start off by you telling our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Oh, sure. Well, I'm a child psychologist, and I've been in the field for, well, like almost three decades now. And I'm a mom and I love working with kiddos who have behavioral challenges. That was kind of one of my specialty areas. And I'm also an infant and toddler mental health specialist. So a lot of my work has been with looking at developmental differences and challenges in the very early years. And that's typically when you wouldn't think about going to see a psychologist, but it really had to do with helping parents understand early development and helping parents and preschools and daycare providers have a better understanding of how our little tiny humans develop resiliency and what their behaviors mean. That's so wonderful. And I was reading in your new book how you had been a psychologist for a while and decided to go back and get that infant and infant mental health and toddler mental health training. Can you talk a little bit about that? How you, you know, you were saying we're like trained in the top-down approach originally. Right, right. Well, in, in traditional mental health training, I don't know if this is how it was for you, but in our in our education, we learned a little bit about infants, maybe in terms of attachment theory and, and things like that. But generally the training starts at about age five, you know, when you can when you have little humans who are talking and where you can do psychological testing and understand their their thinking, their cognition. But in infant and toddler mental health, and the reason I went in there is that I really was wanting to have a preventative model. So I saw so many teenagers and and young adults that were struggling for a decade as as an adult psychologist. I was really hearing things that I wish their parents would have known about them when they were younger like early memories and how do we develop resilience and what does it all mean? So it's actually, it's a subspecialty. So there are certificate programs. There were not very many when I was doing it, but there was, but I had this specialization where we dove deeply into development. And when you think about development, it's really the body and the brain developing at the same time, because little infants and toddlers can't sit on a couch and tell you what's going on. You have to interpret their behaviors through their actions and through how fast they move their bodies and through their looking at their, what we call the autonomic nervous system. What is happening inside of a body in terms of their relative calmness or agitation, their level of distress or their level of feeling safe. And this led to a whole, it really, it was pretty amazing. I was able to study with clinicians in the LA area during the decade of the brain. And that's when a lot of people were thinking about the intersection between stress and trauma and early development. And, oh, what does, what does this look like? What does this mean for our therapy models? where we began to think about the body's experience in the world, informing our predictions of what will happen 
and it just opened up a whole new way of looking at behaviors for me and, and looking at development. So yeah, it was, it's been, it's been really fun. And now I'm, I'm still, I'm still in the office and working not as much, but I'm writing about this transformation, kind of this paradigm shift from looking mostly at our child's thinking mind and looking at a more holistic approach, which is how their bodies are informing their sensations, feelings, and emotions. And we now know that our emotions come from these basic sensations from deep within our bodies. So it's a really exciting time in the field. It is. And you know what, when you said you were lucky to learn in LA during the decade of the brain, I, I didn't know, I didn't know exactly what you meant. And I, I'd love for you to expand on that, but it, it sparked a curiosity. Like I thought immediately Dan Siegel is in Santa Monica. There's something like, there's something (laughs) happening there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He had a study group. I was, I was in a, a study group with his, one of his colleagues, Dr. Connie Lillis. And then there was Alan Shore there, there, and then the decade of the brain also, there was this huge tome that came out called Neuron, From Neurons to Neighborhoods, where the government did a study mm-hmm. on, on basically how to develop our human beings through resiliency, through the models of, of looking at brain development. It was called From Neurons to Neighborhoods. And all of this was coming out in, from, in the 1990s, which was known as, that's why I said it, the 90s were known <laughs> as, it seems so long ago, as the decade of the brain. And that's when the different types of research and brain scanners came online. And, they, and there was just a ton of, of focus on the brain in a new way, in a new way. And uh, yeah, and here in LA, it was just, it was, there were so many people studying this that we were able to form study groups and teams. So I was on teams, for example, with people who were occupational therapists, Mm -hmm. developmental pediatricians, physical therapists, educators, mental health. And so we would look at a child, we would staff a child from all our different disciplinary lenses in this, in this kind of whole, whole uh, body way. And I just learned so much. I learned so much from, from the field of occupational therapy, sensory integration, for example, because a lot of the kiddos that I got in through my practice, for example, who were kicked out of preschools or who were, who were having really aggressive behavior in kindergarten or first grade. And we saw, we looked at them through this lens of their individual differences in their sensory processing and found that once we helped them feel more comfortable in their bodies and the way their bodies were taking in information and moving in response, whoa, all of a sudden the challenging behaviors decreased. So yeah, it's amazing. Like, you know, I don't know, there's so much to say here, but I just I'm excited. And when you said, like, it was such an exciting time. And I feel like again, now we're in a really exciting time. It seems like there's so many different ways that people are approaching the questions of, you know, well being for our whole human population. And 
from, you know, the sensory aspects, attachment development, understanding trauma and what trauma really is. And it's not just what we, you know, used to think. Yeah. So I'm, I feel like this is a right place, right time thing for, I'm happy to feel that I have like 20 more years in the field at least. And, and so excited to see the way things are going. So thank you for Uh, everything. Well, (laughs) thank you. And thank you for, I mean, this is therapy chat, right? You are bringing people together. You are bringing on colleagues and others who are talking about these different exciting pieces that you're right. We are really at a, at an exciting time where so many different pieces of information are coming together and that we have more ways to help people and reduce suffering. Absolutely. And I should have added in culture too, because that's definitely something that is more present to looking at what, how culture influences, you know, what's working and not working for people in wherever they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Culture and equity and bias and and what it's like for some of some humans to to experience threat or safety in our world. I mean, I think we really are coming to a new understanding of all of those areas in the last couple of years, as well as just additional stresses from from the pandemic. So it's been absolutely been a wild ride. It has. But something else that you said, I'd just like you to expand on a little bit. And just in that little blip that you were saying before, you mentioned how our, how the, basically you were kind of saying that the inputs to the body influence, you know, from externally and from inside the body, the way the person predicts what will happen. And I, I think that it would be easy for a listener not to get what you meant when you said predict what will happen. But can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for picking up on that because it's, uh, it's related to, this is kind of new information, but it's related to one of the most exciting theories, I think, new neuroscience-based theory called the theory of constructed emotions and the, the lab of Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. And what, what her lab is discovering and what, what the neuroscience about how we experience emotions, how that happens is so interesting because it has to do with how our brain predicts what's going to happen based on our past experiences, plus what's going on inside of our bodies. That's a process known as interoception. So feedback from literally inside of our bodies that is feeding up to our brain, giving us a basic sense of like what's called affect, like calmness or agitation, positive feelings or negative feelings. These are coming up from both the insides of our bodies and also from how we experience the outside world through our sensory systems. So all of a sudden you have this idea of sensory processing that isn't just relegated to a sensory processing disorder or certain children with overreactivity. It's all of us. We all process, the only way any of us understands the world is through what's going on inside our gut, inside our bodies, essentially our whole, not just our gut, and how we're taking in information. And then our brain mixes that with all of our aggregate past experiences and makes a prediction for us as to how we're going to react in any given situation. And it really is kind of mind boggling if you think about like, its implications because for for our children for example we our goal then becomes to help them predict 
better, help them predict that their world is a safe place. Let's just say a child who, who has uh, all of a sudden develops a phobia or panic attacks. And we know that that is because all for some conflagration of reasons, that child's brain is now predicting threat and danger, even when that child is physically safe, uh, ostensibly safe. But that doesn't matter. What matters is our internal experience, right? Of how right. we feel on the inside. And so then we go to all these nice things that we can do to help our bodies feel safer and help coach parents on what are those things about your child system that helps them calm down? How do you use your relationship to help what we call co-regulate that little nervous system into feeling better, to feeling safer and to communicating with you when they're in distress? Mm, yeah. <laughs> how do so, we <laughs> how do we right 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 well that's you know kind of that's kind of the topic of 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 this next book of this book brain body parenting is that what we really need to do is become observers of our own nervous systems of our own internal state right it, on a relative relative scale of feeling calm and alert to feeling overexcited, you know, agitated, fight or flighty kind of, or maybe just so exhausted we're checked out. So understanding on that continuum where we are at any given point in time and when our, where our child is. And once you do that, then you can kind of do a roadmap. So if you see a child who is upregulated, overactive in what we call that fight or flight response, then our first goal is to use our relationship, to use our own calm nervous system to help calm the child down. And if you've ever tried to calm a child down by lecturing them or giving them a timeout or dangling a goodie in front of them, you'll know that if that child is truly in distress, that doesn't work very well. What works well is, is our own, lending them our calmness, lending them our, what we call co-regulation. Yeah. Oh, you know, I just thought about how when you said a tantrum or a timeout, you know, in those moments, like how you handle it and how, how well does it work? And think back to my own, you know, parenting when my kids were little, cause they're in their twenties now, I can just remember easily how chaotic it would feel when, you know, they, they were throwing, throwing a fit, throwing a tantrum, whatever you want to call it. They were losing it. Yeah. I was probably losing it too. Maybe I was losing it first and then they did. Who knows? But, um, but then you just feel so powerless to do anything. And so I was thinking about how it's so automatic for many parents to yell when they don't know what else to do. And then the child may become quiet. So it's like, it seems as if that calmed them down somehow, but I know it's not that it's probably that they're shutting down. Mm. I think so, Laura. That's that's what that's what it appears to be happening. If it if it works, you can you can have a behavior change, but that behavior change may mm-hmm. not be calming the child's nervous system. It may be revving it up. So if a child is scared, for example, if they are, and again, this isn't this isn't meant to put any guilt on parents mm-hmm. because we've all been there, and it is so hard. It's really really hard. But if a child is, is blamed or reprimanded, or if we, if we overpower a child and that behavior stops, 
it might be because they're going into that what we call the blue pathway, the dorsal vagal pathway, where they are protecting themselves and kind of shutting down a little bit. So we want to remember that human nervous systems thrive on cues of safety, not cues of threat. And mm-hmm. to the, uh, at, at, so to the to the best extent possible, the research really shows that the pathway to helping children in distress is by lending them another nervous system, which is us, that is witnessing their witnessing their pain, of course, keeping them safe and not allowing them to do things that will har- harm themselves or others. But at the same time, just being able to witness someone's distress and let them know they're not alone, that we know there's a difference between a top-down, in uh, purposeful testing behavior and an out-of-control human, which is that's that body-up behavior. The bottom-up behavior is different than the mediated thinking about, I'm going to do something on purpose right now and test out my limits of my power, which kids do. But that's a big difference between that and a child who is a red face, snotty nose, heart rate is very irregular, sweaty hands, you know, falling over themselves. That's true autonomic distress. And that's where we really want to pour on, if we can, of course, compassion for ourselves, make sure we're good, we're okay enough to help that child to, to say, I see you. We're going to get this together, get through this together. Oh, buddy, this is rough. This is rough. This is rough, but you're not alone. Yeah, that's so hard. And I think it's also hard, you know, if the parent feels so dysregulated themselves to, to bring a calm nervous system to co-regulate. And I say that from experience, not for, not in a shaming, you know, I've been there. So I know it can feel like, I don't know what to do, you know? Yeah. I've been there too. I think every parent can relate to this. And and on top of it, you're exhausted. If you're a parent of toddlers, for example, who yes. really require a lot of patience and we expect more from them than they're really able to do in terms of self-control, but they are so tricky because they seem like little adults, but oh, they're just not. And it really takes a lot of, a lot of, I think, again, like mindful self-compassion for ourselves as caregivers. And also some education, because I really think we don't really understand social and emotional development well enough. So true. So true. Do you think that it would be helpful to talk a little bit about a little more in depth because you started to, and then I just asked you a few other questions, but when you were talking about infant mental health, can you talk a little bit more about the brain and body developing from, from birth, like you were saying, and the nervous system, autonomic nervous system? Sure. Well, human humans are born very immature. There our brains are very immature relative to other mammals who come out and they're, they're more developed, but humans are completely dependent on on our caregivers to meet all of those needs and that that first every that you know the first breath and including your intrauterine environment but everything begins to wire that baby's brain gets wired to the world they're in so they're what they learn to expect from the world is shaped by how well their caregivers are able to essentially see their needs and meet their needs. 
And that's called, so the studies on that are related to something called responsive care. And what we know works best for developing resilience for infants are adults around the baby who do those, those steps of responsive care. That is, first of all, have awareness when the baby has a need just to, to see it, right? The baby is uh, fussing or crying, for example. And then number two, make an accurate guess, accurate enough guess as to what's going on. So let's just say the baby is hungry. And then number three, you meet that need, you feed the baby. And so this, this, those three aspects of responsive care are highly correlated to infants who get to start to develop better self-regulation because they get to believe that a need as they have it is going to be met. And this is why we don't recommend letting babies cry, for example. It's not useful to let a hungry baby cry for an hour before it's fed. That gives the baby a different message, right, about how well somebody is taking care of their body. So infant development really ha- is, ha- is, is anchored in co-regulation. So that is the needs are met by the caregiver. And then we, we gradually do a little bit less and a little bit less. And as a baby turns into a toddler, I mean, even babies start to develop these little techniques of calming themselves. Babies can find their thumb. They can push their little feet against the crib. They can look around the room, right? They can look, they can find your face. They can suck on their hands. So little babies start to do things on their own. And then we don't have to be there constantly, right? Every single second holding them and putting, forcing their hands in their mouth. They start, they do that on their own. And our t- and then our toddlers, again, with the emotional regulation, they need so much patience and help from us when they dysregulate because they get a, a pink sippy cup and they really wanted a blue one. When they have this enormous meltdown because the wrong kind of, we ran out of the type of toothpaste that they love and they have to use a different kind of toothpaste. All of those expected, what we would call tantrum behaviors, are really normative in those early years. And it requires a ton of patience from parents to just know this isn't a discipline issue. This is a little child developing self-regulation through the help of attuned adults who see, see an issue and don't judge them, but just help them. And a lot of our preschoolers who don't have the regulation, a lot of the preschoolers I see in my practice, like the ones with aggressive and challenging behaviors, the there isn't a, a quite an understanding that these behaviors are not a child's intent to misbehave. They are stress responses, stress reactions. And those stress reactions are coming from a nervous system that is detecting that it's just not feeling safe. And even that child could be in a very safe environment. It's not what it means. It's how it's landing in the child. And that's the concept that Dr. Porges, who developed the polyvagal theory, calls neuroception. And uh, in the book, I just call it the safety sensor. We all have a safety sensor and sometimes it'll go off on things that are invisible to us for the child. And we don't know why they're crying or fussing or hitting, but something has clicked. And right now they've moved into that nervous system that is moving a lot or yelling or screaming. And it's, it doesn't ask for their consent first. It just happens automatically. 
Right. And yeah, I think it's so important what you said. One piece about it's not intentional. It's not, it's not being spoiled. It's not, you know, you've, you've overindulged them or you're not getting them in under control enough. It's their attempt to feel, to get their themselves to feel right within the environment. Yes. Because it doesn't yes. feel right for them. That's right. Exactly. It's a feeling. It's not mediated by, I am going to do this right now because I am mad. It's more of the body moving in a way to feel better. So if you ask that toddler why they did it, they will have no idea why. And they'll make right. up a reason because humans do, right? Like they'll they want to give you an up. answer because you're asking for one, yes. right? And so they're trying to give you what you're asking for. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. There's such well, interesting little guy, little people. <laughs> I know. And they're so sweet. I mean, when it's, so when it's not your child and you see a toddler, you're like, they're adorable. But when you're. <laughs> Raising oh. toddlers, you're like, ah, oh, my patience, you know, it really, it gets hard. It gets so hard. It gets so hard. And I think we just have to so emphasize that if you feel, if you have a toddler or you, it, or you remember having toddlers, it is bone crunching hard work and it pulls us in every direction, emotionally, physically. And if you're, if you know, yeah, if you're working from home or if you have, experienced additional stress through the pandemic and most people have it's been even harder to parent I think it's been harder to parent oh my gosh yeah I really feel for parents who have little kids to take care of during this because it's been very hard for me and I'm not even I'm just it's just me and my husband and our pets you know (laughs) yeah oh it's hard It's hard. It's hard. I do. I feel for everybody. It's really been hard. Yeah. So there was an example in the book that really felt relatable to me, which was not because this is something I've experienced, but I think a lot of parents and teachers and therapists have seen and heard about things like this. You talked about a dad who's dropping his child off at school and his daughter is like clinging to him and she doesn't want to get out of the car. And she's like, you know, she's crying and she's begging not to go in. And of course, what we do is we just like force them, you know, into the hands of the teacher and drive off and your parents crying and child's crying and, you know, but you talked about how the, the child's body showed that she was in distress and her body was trying to regulate her. You, you said like her body was undulating and, you know, trying to actually, even in the behaviors of the grabbing onto the dad and pulling and like the way she was moving her body, it was clear that she was, it wasn't just the dad that she didn't want to let go of. She was actually trying to get herself regulated to be able to go in. That's right. That's right. And that's the, the body uses movement, the the platform that our, our brain and our body uses movement to manage that stress that's felt on a very primitive level inside. And so the feeling of threat, she felt the feeling of threat, but this was a child who loved school. So it wasn't like we call school refusal, you know, and it's kind of an interesting word. Mm -hmm. It was more what maybe what we would think of as separation anxiety, but this was a child who really was that cascade of feelings that hit her when they got to a certain place in the drop-off line and her, again, her brain was, was beginning to experience 
all of those body sensations that she had before that were negative and she didn't have any positive ones to cling on to. And so her body would use movement, which is clinging, holding on to his, holding on to the parent's leg, begging them not to leave, screaming, crying. And, and one way for, to deal with that and what in this, in this case, what, what was, what they tried, which didn't feel right for the parents was that, you know, they pried her off, the teacher pried her off and then went inside with her and they, they texted the dad and mom later and, and said, you know, she was fine after 10 minutes, you know, but we really, you know, we really it's like it's, something about that says something is really that. the best way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this prying off a kid off of a parent's leg? Is this it, it, it? That was pretty hefty cost to the child and to the teacher and to the dad. Right. Everyone involved, the physical handling of the child, it just all felt wrong and Anyway, when we, when, we, when we began to create and curate, creating a new scenario that her body felt safe in, that's where we got some traction. So what did we do? We, cre- we stopped the, the school drop-off because I analyzed that there was likely, her body was likely picking up cues of threat from the chaos. There were a lot of mommies and daddies. There was the car. There were people. There was background, foreground noises. It was very, it was very an overwhelming environment to do a drop off. And so I think all that chaos was signaling her body to say, ah, this is weird. So we started having the dad arrive and the teacher was amazing. 15 minutes early before the drop-off period and he parked the car and they walked in together and just chatted with the teacher outside the door of the room for a few minutes every day. And sure enough, the teacher asked the girl if she'd hold her hand and be her special helper. And she's went into the room and the first time it happened without, you know, first few times she was a little sniffly, little crying, but she did not cling onto the dad's leg. And within a couple of weeks, and so within a week, she was walking in with the teacher and then about, I think, I can't remember if it was two or three weeks later, but at some point later, she asked her dad and she told her dad she was ready to be dropped off in the, in the carpool lane again. I mean, the drop off lane again. And so it was, it was really understanding this child, this, this child's nervous system, looking at her stress response in her body, looking at her individual differences. She was as it turns out, she was quite aware of sounds, very, she could hear things from a mile away. So that can increase a child's stress sometimes in strange situations. And then thirdly, her, her developmental ability, her, she needed more co-regulation. And that wasn't her fault. That was just her, how she was developing. We develop co-regulation from birth to our, you know, early adulthood. So it was a nice way of thinking about once we respect the child's body's sense of things and take it at their pace, oftentimes those challenging behaviors disappear. They go away on their own. I love that. I mean, it's like, it's as if if we stop pathologizing everything 
that maybe <laughs> we can just actually come to solutions together and just, you know, and the child says, well, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what's going on instead yeah. of, you know, force her to do this, make her do that, get right. her to comply, you know? Right. Collaborate with the yeah. child and let like them assume good intent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, why do we see kids as like, you know, a threat to somehow like they're trying to get one over on me or something? It's like, what? I think it depends on us. I, I know. I, I think it's somehow in our in our cultural DNA mm -hmm. to think that we need to we need to control children's reactions yes. and behaviors. And maybe we need to make sure that we are, we don't have enough discipline. If we don't have enough discipline, maybe we'll raise children who are out of control. I think there's some sort of mythology around that. And, and it might relate back to hundreds of years ago when there the saying was children should be seen and not yes. heard. I mean, I think it, we have some roots in, in our early understanding of children that are still kind of there that aren't really in line with how we see, how we know children are in our, in our new knowledge. Right. I agree. I was thinking that too. Children should be seen and not heard. It seems to still kind of pop up a lot. Yeah. And, and our education system is very heavily anchored in behaviorism, right? So that is taught to most teachers, you know, that field of behaviorism, it was an interesting field of, of, of research on animals, you know, around the beginning of the, of the, of the 19th century. And I mean, of, of the 20th century, in the 1900s, it was, it was interesting research, right? But then it got it got hijacked into psychology, and we still, I think, think that that's modern technology. But behavioral looking at behaviors as the target and not the signal is another piece that I talk about in the book, and that is the newer thinking is that behaviors are a signal, and if we try to always go after behaviors and making sure ch ch children are behaving well or in air quotes or if they are compliant we may be missing the bigger picture of what's going on inside the child that is motivating the behavior which is an internal body-based sense of not feeling good and being activated in their nervous system yeah and you know before we started recording you and i were saying that this this is all children not just children who've experienced trauma or children who have sensory processing disorder or other, you know, neurodivergent presentations, but it's, it's children. This is how humans develop. It's how all humans develop. We all are on a journey to thrive, to survive by feeling safe and our bodies take care of us. Our bodies travel through these different pathways of our autonomic nervous system to make sure we are, we are safe. And I think that's the best thing we can do for our children is to be aware of how they are perceiving the world and not judge them for it, but use their bodies as their, our roadmap to helping them develop a sense of safety and security and eventually flexibility. Because I think in the end, resilience kind of equals flexibility and the ability to shift. And if any of us have needed that in the last couple of years, like we've had to be mm -hmm. so flexible as parents and as professionals and as all of us with, with these shifts 
in our daily life, our work life, everything due to COVID-19. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, and that what you said there about flexibility that really resonates and it feels like, you know, rigidity and compliance and force, you know, that's, that's not really sustainable. I mean, people don't thrive in that, that paradigm. So if we're forcing kids into boxes, you know, to, you have to be like this and not looking at them as individuals, we're not only missing the essence of who each person is, but we're limiting them and potentially there could be, you know, we could be contributing to the toxic stress that they may have been exposed to before, or we could be giving it, you know, inadvertently by trying to make them just, you know, be quiet, be still and not do what their bodies want to do naturally. Yeah. And not that we not, you know, I, th- I think that it's so important. We don't blame or shame ourselves as parents. If we, if we have tried to have compliance, because which parent hasn't done that? Well, I thought that I'll just say it right now. I mean, I yeah. thought that if my children weren't obeying me, I was not doing it right. And it right. Didn't, I didn't, couldn't figure out how to make them obey. But finally, I realized if they wanted to, if they wanted to comply, it was a lot better. So we started working with it that way. That's so great. I know it's somehow I did too. I thought, well, maybe I'm not consistent enough. Maybe I'm not a strong enough disciplinarian. I think it's, there's a lot of pressure to feel that way as parents. They're really, and and of course, a lot of messages about that, a lot of messages about that. And, and parents do feel very, very judged in our culture. There are studies on that. Parents feel like their eyes are on them and and it's so difficult. But yeah, it's when we, when we understand that our best efforts really on, on, in parenting aren't simply focused on our child's behaviors, Mm -hmm. but on the way your child's body and brain processes, integrates and, and experiences their world then we really have a new roadmap and it's pretty exciting because we can then be, we can be sturdy, strong parents and still be, you know, raise children with the values we want them to have, but also have an awareness of their emotional life, hopefully in a way that maybe other generations never had. Exactly. And, you know, I don't want to shame anybody because I am far from perfect and I've gotten many things wrong as a parent and as a human, but you know, we, we have to just, I think we just have to be open to learning the best information that's out there at the time and trying to synthesize that into how we relate with the people in our lives, you know, our children, ourselves, (laughs) our parents. Amen to that. And (laughs) I, I, I think that's, as far as our field goes, I think that's kind of amazing that in mental health, you know, if, if you're suffering as a, as a parent or as a, or as a provider or anything in between, there are therapists available that can help you make sense of that jumble inside of you, the jumble of experience of what may have happened to you, some of which you remember, some of it, which you may not mm-hmm. remember. And if you're feeling dysregulated, upset, anxious uh, on a, on a really continual basis, and it's, and it's impacting the quality of your life, you know, we have telehealth now. It's it's opened up. Uh, the pandemic opened up a whole range of of options for for getting help, and I urge you to do that because certainly in the last couple of years, life has really thrown a lot of stress 
at people. And additionally, if you're a parent raising children, this has been a really wild ride. So yeah, really challenging time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so glad that your both of your books, but your new book in particular is here because I think it's a very compassionate guide for parents and teachers and anyone, you know, we can only do the best we can with what we know. So if you don't know how to help children co-regulate, you give the instructions right there in the book. So I think it's wonderful. And thank you for what you do. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. It's it's great to be talking to you again and uh, really looking forward, have a lot of hope for 2022. So let's see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to end. And I'm so grateful that you could spend time with me today to share this message with our audience. Can you tell people where they can find more of what you're doing? Sure. Um, My website is monadelahook.com. And I'm also on Facebook, uh, Dr. Mona Delahook, Instagram, at Mona Delahook and Twitter. And I just, yeah, I love to post like studies and tips and stuff that is really, I'm trying to translate neuroscience research for our use as parents in in everyday language so would love to have you join me on social and again just so happy to be able to connect with you and your audience today well, thank you again so much for being here Therapist, I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about why I created Trauma Therapist Network and how I hope that it will benefit your clients and you. Pretty simple. There has not been one place to find information about trauma, find a trauma therapist, and for trauma therapists to find networking, training, connection, support, practice building all in one place. So for example, as a trauma therapist, you can have a Psychology Today profile and they are definitely the the biggest, broadest therapy directory that exists. They've been around the longest, but what they don't do is they are not specific in what do you do that makes you a trauma therapist. So if a therapist on Psychology Today says, I specialize in trauma and PTSD, but when you look down their listing, it also says that they specialize in like every other mental health disorder that exists. And how do you know that they have the knowledge and experience and that they are the person that can help you with your trauma? There's no way to know. So that's why I made Trauma Therapist Network. And initially I felt that it would be useful to create a site for people wanting to learn about trauma and find a trauma therapist all in one place. But what I didn't account for is that therapists are missing out on connection and community even more during this pandemic. So once I realized that this was something that could be added into Trauma Therapist Network to make it a true community for therapists... I decided to go ahead and add in some content. So starting in March, Trauma Therapist Network Community for Therapists includes your listing that lets people know how you work with trauma. It includes once a month, an hour-long training workshop on a topic related to trauma, and once a month, an hour-long Q&A workshop about various topics related to our work, including practice building. And I'm going to bring in some outside practice building experts to help with that. One time per month, we will have a call focused on therapist self-care, an experiential practice of self-care for one hour per month 
And once a month, we will also have case consultation calls. So I'm working on putting all that together in the membership community. The new content starts in March, so you can sign up in February and in March, you'll have access to that. Registration closes on February 28th for any new members. So if you are thinking of joining, this is the time. Just go on over to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com and you can take a look around the site, look at the listings, check out some of the amazing therapists that are going to be in community with you and who will be learning with you and learning from you and you will be learning from them. I'm so excited about this and I'm so grateful to all of you who have already joined. So if you're thinking about becoming a member of Trauma Therapist Community, don't wait. Just head on over there to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com and sign up. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.